All right. Well, good evening, Shoreline Church. I'm Joe Collins. It is, uh, as always, great to be here with you tonight. We are uh, in our series, Jesus Worth Following. Last week, we talked about starting over, and today I want to talk about humility. So uh, there was this doctor. He was a brand new doctor, just got out of med school, and he opened up a shop right away, his own little clinic right away. And of course, there was a, another doctor in the town, and we'll call that doctor Dr. Old. Dr. Old was upset at this new doctor, we're going to call him Dr. New, because he thought, who's this young guy? How could he open up a practice right away? He doesn't know anything. I'm going to have to teach this Dr. New a lesson. So he decides to disguise himself as a patient, and he goes and he visits Dr. New. Now, Dr. New had a sign in his waiting room that said, get treated for $500. If not cured, get $1,000 back. And this sign really upset Dr. Old. I mean, the pride, the arrogance of this young doctor. Who does he think he is? So he went in and he said, uh, Dr. New, I, uh, I have a problem. I have lost all taste in my mouth. So Dr. New said, well, he called in his nurse. He said, nurse, I need you to go to box number 22, take the medicine out, put three drops into this patient's mouth. So the nurse does. She comes in. She puts three drops. And as soon as the first drop goes in, the, the Dr. Old, who's hiding as a, as a disguise as a patient, spits it out. He goes, oh, that's gasoline. How could you put that in my mouth? And doctor said, congratulations, you're cured. That'll be $500. So Dr. Old's really mad now, and he leaves, and he's stewing on it for a week, and he said, I got to get this guy back. I'm, I'm going to figure out a different thing to, to get him on. And so he, he goes back again, disguised as a patient, and he sees that same sign, get treated for 500 If not cured, get 1000 and so Dr. Old says to Dr. New, listen, I have a problem. I'm losing my memory. I'm having a hard time remembering things. So Dr. New says, okay, calls in the nurse. Nurse, I need you to go get the medicine out of box number 22 and put three drops in this patient's mouth. And he says, oh, no, you don't. I'm not going to fall for that one again. Congratulations. Your memory has been cured. That will be $500. So Dr. Old's really angry now. I mean, he is frustrated. Like, I got to get this guy. I, this is not okay. So a couple weeks go back by, and he decides to go back. And this time, he's got a foolproof idea. And he comes into the office, and he says, Dr. New, I have another problem. My eyesight, it's going bad. I can hardly see. And Dr. New says, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I don't have any eyesight, I mean, any, any cure for, for eyesight. So... Here's your thousand dollars. So Dr. Old was feeling good. Like he finally showed up this young whippersnapper. And as he was walking out, he was counting his money and he stopped and he turned around and he said, Hey, uh, Dr. New, this isn't a thousand. This is only 500. Congratulations. Your eyesight has been cured. That'll be a thousand dollars. You know, sometimes it takes humility to follow Jesus. Dr. Old struggled with humility. 
Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 27 and 28. It says, They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now, if you remember last week, we're in a series, we're going through the pages, the story of Mark, the book of Mark, one story at a time. And if you remember, Jesus had uh, just arrived into the city of Jerusalem a couple days ago. It was a Sunday. And on that day, he came into the city to a great parade, people praising God, calling him the Messiah. They were cheering his name. Thousands were there celebrating the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem on Passover. Now, prior to that, Jesus had spent three years all over that map you see on the screen. That's the land of Palestine in Jesus's day. And he zigzagged all over that place, preaching repentance, practicing grace. And during that, he developed quite a name for himself. And in the third year of his public ministry, he came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And when he entered the city, thousands of people came out. I mean, maybe tens of thousands. They lined the roadway on the way into the city, and they they cheered for Jesus, calling him their Messiah. That day ended. Jesus left the city. He went to a town called Bethany. I actually have a little map, a little blow-up of that, of what that might have looked like. Very simple map. Bethany was just a small town just outside of Jerusalem, maybe a couple miles away. And that's where he would stay the night. So the next day, Monday, he gets up and he re-enters the city. But this time he goes into the temple and he clears the temple of all the money changers, of the, of the uh, traders, and of the merchants that are in the temple. And you remember from last Sunday, he did that because this was disrupting. It was, it was, it was downgrading the quality of worship for the Gentiles. And in the process of clearing out the temple, He was so upset that he began quoting scripture and actually calling down or calling for the end of the temple system. He basically called curses on the temple and the system and their, and the religious system and really of Judaism as a whole. That was Monday. He left, went and spent the night in Bethany. And now we pick up the story on Tuesday. Jesus is again in the temple. Now, as you could, as you might imagine, when he shows up, there are people there waiting for him. <clears throat> They're pretty upset <clears throat> at what he had done on Monday. The whole clearing of the temple, the whole calling curses down on the temple authorities, on the religious system, calling for the end of Judaism as they knew it. And they were very, very upset with him. As a matter of fact, Jesus ends up spending this whole day, Tuesday, in argument after argument with religious leader after religious leader because they just lined up one at a time. It was like he returned to the scene of the crime and they were there and they wanted to bust him for what he had just done. The first people to confront him came from the top, the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish ruling council. This was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish religion. And there were some pretty impressive guys there. There were some chief priests, not just priests, chief priests. There were some teachers of the law. There were some elders. They came as a group and they came to confront Jesus. 
These were highly respected men. These were very powerful men. They had authority over everything religious in Judaism and among the Jewish people. They oversaw what went on at the temple. They oversaw religious instruction and practice. And most notably, they oversaw the ordination or the accreditation of various rabbis. You see, whenever a a new teacher would appear at this time in Israel, someone had to verify if they were what they called orthodox. That's just a fancy word for saying legitimate. And so the priests, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, various groups would often run into a teacher and they would confront them and they would ask them what they believe and why they believe. They'd have these conversations and then they would decide, okay, this guy's good or this guy's not. And that was sort of their way of maintaining quality control over what went on in uh, Israel at the time, or, you know, when, when it came to like religious instruction uh, or teaching. Now, I got to say, I don't find that all that wrong, right? I mean, I think that's a good thing. I think we should always be careful of any new teacher or new teaching. We should always vet it out, check it out with scripture, make sure that it's uh, meshing with what God teaches, right? I don't think that's a bad thing. And that was a good purpose that they served. The problem in this case was that Jesus wasn't new. He had been teaching and preaching for three years now, and he certainly wasn't untested. We read throughout the Gospel of Mark in previous lessons many different times where scribes or teachers of law or Pharisees would come and confront Jesus about something he said or something he did, and he would handily explain himself and oftentimes put egg on their face. And so Jesus wasn't new. He wasn't untested. So I have a question for you. What was it about him? And it's okay to get some feedback. To, 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 you can take a shot at it. It's, there's no right or wrong here. But what was it about Jesus that caused them to not trust him? It wasn't that he wasn't tested. It wasn't that he was brand new. So what was it? What was it that they, they didn't like about him? Yes. He was challenging challenging the system that supported them. Anyone else? Yes. He spoke with authority. He spoke with authority. That's a a really good insight. Yeah. (laughs) You guys are smart, man. The people were, all three of those are dead on. And we could probably think of a few others, but those are all that you nailed it. All three of them. I mean, he was challenging their teaching, things that they held to be true and 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 authentic, and and he was challenging that. They hated the fact that he was popular, that people loved him, and that they gravitated to him. And you said, um, I'm I'm spacing right now on what you said. What was it again? He spoke with authority. Here's something really interesting. I'm going to back up just one map. Okay, so you see this map. At the top, we have Galilee, and we have Capernaum. Capernaum was kind of Jesus' home base for most of his ministry. And a few times a year, he would make the journey all the way down to Jerusalem, so you can just sort of draw a straight line from Capernaum to Jerusalem, and Jesus would make this trip. Now, when Jesus began his public ministry, when he first started, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He left Capernaum, he traveled down, and somewhere just above Jerusalem, you see that area that says Perea on, I guess it will be on your right? He made a, 
uh, right turn, went into Perea to the River Jordan to a man named John the Baptist. And he was baptized into the ministry, so to speak, or he was christened, so to speak, by John the Baptist, not the temple authorities at the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, John the Baptist is a very interesting guy too because there's no record of him going to Jerusalem to get uh, uh, the blessing of the priesthood at Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the very first chapter of the book of Mark, it says that John the Baptist just came out of the wilderness one day and began preaching. And so in that way, in that sense, Jesus and John were not a part of the mainstream religious structure of their day. They were like these unorthodox outsiders. And that really bothered people, the religious leaders. And so the truth is, they didn't, they didn't, they had a problem with Jesus, not because he was new or untested. They just didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like his message. They didn't like his method. They just had a hard time with him on that basis. You know, people with the most to lose, like Dan uh, alluded to, that they, that, that he was challenging their livelihood, people with the most to lose oftentimes have the hardest time being humble. Think about it. When you're invested in something, you're sure that this is the right thing and you've poured time and energy and devotion into it and then someone challenges you and says that isn't right or maybe you should rethink that, it is hard to change course. I mean, I, I have a hard time when people tell me I'm wrong on an opinion. I mean, you start telling me I'm wrong and, it, and it's going to affect my livelihood, boy, I'm going I'm to have a really hard time being humble. These guys struggled with humility because they were so invested into a system that they believed to be true. And even when someone challenged it, and even when someone was able to credibly challenge it, they still had a hard time accepting that they might be wrong. It takes humility to be a Christian, to be a follower of God. I want you to remember one thing. When you find yourself disagreeing with Jesus... The problem is not Jesus. Right. Okay. Sorry, skip ahead here. Verse 29. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority am I doing these things. So the Pharisee, or the, the, this religious group of, of re, the religious elite here, the, 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 the cream of the crop, they come and they're trying to discredit Jesus. Now I want you to remember, they couldn't just arrest him. They wanted to, and in any other situation, if it was any other person, they would have arrested him. But because Jesus was so popular, they couldn't just arrest him. 
So when he showed back up on Tuesday after he made a mess of the temple on Monday, the only option they had was to get into an argument with him. They had to try to challenge him and try to somehow discredit him in front of the people. And so they sent the best of the best to go do this. And they thought they had it. They had one of these trick questions lined up. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, you can see that question in a couple of different lights. Some people see it as, as a trap. Really, there's no good answer to that question. It's sort of like politi- uh, uh, reporters today. They, they sit down with a politician and they say, so have you stopped beating your wife? How do you answer that question? Edom, have you stopped beating your wife? If he says yes, well, then he just implied that he used to beat her. And if he says no, well, then he implied that he still beats her. It's a no-win situation, right? And and there's a lot of ways you can look at this where they're really trying to trap Jesus into an answer that would make him look uncredible or that would discredit him. Is uncredible a word? (laughs) I don't think it, okay. So they're trying to get him. (laughs) Other people see them as being just extremely condescending. Who do you think you are? By what authority? We are the people that decide what's legitimate and what's not. We're the people that make the decision on whether you can preach or not, whether you're orthodox or, or not. We, you never came to us. We don't know who you are. Like you, you could see them coming at them from that perspective too, trying to maintain the high ground. The one thing I want you to know is that Jesus isn't being annoying. So sometimes you can read this and you can go, well, that's really childish. I won't answer your question until you answer my question. Sometimes it comes off that way, but that's actually not what Jesus is doing here. At the time, that was a very normal way to, to have dialogue in a debate. Somebody would ask a question and it was actually fair to say, okay, I'll answer that question, but I have one for you and I'd like to, let's open it up with, what do you think of this? And then I'll tell you what I think of that. So he wasn't just being argumentative or difficult. It was actually a pretty traditional way of debating. Remember, we're in the temple courts. It's Passover week. It's actually the the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Passover was a part of it. People are there for the holidays, basically. They're milling around the temple courts. They're worshiping God. There's literally hundreds, if not thousands of people watching this conversation. This is not being done in a secret little corner. It's being done in front of people because they wanted people to see that they were going to discredit Jesus. They wanted as many people to see them win as possible. And here they are trying to trap him. And Jesus retorts with a very traditional retort, which was, okay, I'll answer that question if you answer this question. And he trapped them because he asked them a question about John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist wasn't ordained by the temple. He had just showed up out of the wilderness one day and began preaching. The religious elite were not big fans of John the Baptist, but the people loved John the Baptist. He was a hero. He was the the big deal before Jesus eventually surpassed him. And so if they were to say, well, John the Baptist was from God, then he would easily go, then why didn't you listen to him? And all those people there would be like, yeah, why didn't you listen to him? And they would immediately lose face. But if they were to say, well, he's not from God, 
It doesn't even say what would happen. It just says that they were so afraid of everybody that they wouldn't answer that question. So they refused to answer. So Jesus said, well, until you can figure out an answer, I'm not going to give you an answer either. Can you imagine the egg on their face at this moment? I mean, they thought they could easily discredit Jesus and be done with him. And here they are stuck in their own trap that they laid for him. He turned around and laid it back on them. Another question for you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What was it about John the Baptist that the religious establishment didn't like? Yes. He didn't follow their rules. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I, I, for sake of time, I didn't want to go back, but if you read just the very first chapter of Mark, just the very first section, it describes John the Baptist. He wore uh, camel's hair and a leather belt. He ate locusts and what. I mean, he was not the norm. He was not ministry type, right? He didn't follow what they their rules. Yeah. He wasn't in their club. That's right. In fact, he didn't even bother to go down there to get in their club. He just started preaching in the wilderness. Yeah. When they came out, when, that's even better. When he was preaching in the wilderness, people came to him because they loved what he had to say. Literally by the thousands, people came to hear John the Baptist. And when the religious leaders showed up to try to make sure he was orthodox, he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> Who told you you could come here? Well, I mean, he wasn't very nice to them either, was he? There's a lot of reasons why they didn't like John the Baptist, but here's the bottom line reason. And, and, and it got, it got associated, he got associated, Jesus got associated with him right from the start because Jesus went to him, got baptized by him, and basically became his heir, became his, uh, his replacement. Now he actually surpassed John the Baptist by quite a bit. Even John the Baptist would tell you that, that I was, he wasn't fit to untie Jesus' sandals. You know, Jesus was much greater. But the bottom line was, is Jesus and John the Baptist were, th were a threat to the religious establishment. They didn't like these guys. They were like rogues out there. And they couldn't control them. They couldn't sanitize them. They couldn't make them fit in the box. And so they became increasingly antagonistic towards them. You know, God speaks to us in a variety of ways. Sometimes he speaks to us in an orthodox way or a legitimate way, a way we would expect. For instance, tonight. Hopefully you hear God speaking to you through the scriptures. Very traditional, very normal, very orthodox. Sometimes God will speak to us through unorthodox methods. Is that a word? Okay, good, I got the check with Dan. Sometimes God speaks to us through strange things, unusual ways, ways we would never expect to be spoken to. And that's the hard one. We can sit in church and go, okay, this is from God, and that's hard enough sometimes. But imagine when God's trying to get your attention, but he's using something completely unusual, completely outside of the box. Someone or something that you would never imagine. I know a, I listen to a podcast. It's a religious podcast. It's very good. It's 
called The Bible Project. I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic podcast. One of the guys on the podcast talks about his conversion story. And, well, actually, he was sharing about a person he knew, their conversion story. This guy was converted, get this, or the beginning of his conversion began by listening to Tupac. Tupac, 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 whatever. Pac, Pac, potato, potato, what does it matter? I ain't mad at you. (laughs) But he started, he, he was talking about, he was a drug user, he was in a meth house, and Tupac was playing. And there was a song in there, and in the song there was a line about God. And that line got him thinking about God. And from that one one moment began a journey of him getting out of all the drug culture and that whole life and becoming a Christian. Could you think of a more unorthodox way of reaching someone? But God will do that. God will speak to us through all kinds of ways. The question is, are you listening? You see, the the, the, the religious leaders didn't want to listen So they couldn't accept John. They couldn't accept Jesus. They weren't going to listen to them because they weren't what they wanted them to be. They weren't who they thought they should be or whatever the case may be. The point is they refused to listen. Are you listening to God? We're in chapter 12 now, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak in them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers, moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another. That one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they Others, others they killed. He sent, sorry, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus stumps the religious elite. They're trying to trap him. He turns it back on them. They're stuck. They don't have anything to say. They go silent. Jesus doesn't remain silent. Remember, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people standing around watching this. And Jesus tells a parable. Now a parable, let me just quickly make a sidebar. A parable is just a story with a point. So don't get caught up in the details of the parable. They're just stories. And the story is to make a point. Jesus tells this parable, this story about a man who had a vineyard and he had some renters and he went to collect rent and they refused to pay and they beat some of the servants, they killed some. And then he sent his son to collect. And probably the renters thought, hey, the the, the owner must have died. So if we kill his son, the, the vineyard could be ours. So they kill the son and then they find out that the owner's not dead. And what is the owner going to do to the people who killed his son? 
He is going to kill them. In the strongest possible language I could even think of, Jesus accuses the religious leaders of a deep-seated pride that prevented them from listening to God. And really what he's saying is God has had enough of it. It's time to pay the piper. Time's up. I'm tired. I'm tired of telling you again and again and again, trying to get you to listen again and again and again, and you not listen. I've had enough. I'm done. This was the little sermon he preached about the religious leaders of Israel right there in the temple in front of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. I could not think of a stronger statement condemning them of their lack of true religion, of true connection to God. Whatever we do in life, we cannot let ourselves become so prideful that we stop listening to God. It's a death sentence. It's a spiritual death sentence. Here's Jesus trying to make it as clear as the sun is in the sky, or my friend of mine used to say boxcar letters. He's trying to make it as clear as possible, and yet they still wouldn't listen. We can fall into that same trap. We can get comfortable in our religion. We can get comfortable in our daily life and how we live and feel like we're fine. And we can stop hearing God even when he's talking to us directly and even when he's talking to us indirectly. Orthodox, unorthodox, doesn't matter. We just get to that point where we get so tuned out that we stop listening. And that is a death sentence. Verse 10. How many of you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous to our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they even knew he was talking to them, and he was trying to get them to listen, and they decided, we got to kill him. They were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus, I really believe, does something in this last little interaction here that's really profound. It's also very, I don't know, it's unusual. Maybe that's the wrong word. It's unusual to us because we don't think like a rabbi in the first century. What Jesus does here is he does something they used to call stringing pearls. Stringing pearls is when you find a passage of Scripture and it makes you think of another passage of Scripture, and then it leads you to another one, and then to another one, and to another one. And before you know it, you see sort of a, a theme 
in all these little stories in the Bible, but the stories aren't related, but the theme is related. They called that stringing pearls, and rabbis did it all the time in Jesus' day. We still do this today. We'll preach a sermon, and we'll see connections, and we'll make these connections. But we're not as comfortable with it. We're not as used to it because we don't memorize the Bible like they did back then. They would just do it out of memory. We tend to go, well, that reminds me of Galatians 5.19, or that reminds me of 1 Timothy whatever, whereas they would just quote the Scripture. They wouldn't quote chapter and verse because they didn't have chapter and verse. They just quoted the story. And that's what Jesus does. He starts stringing pearls. But what he does that's funny is he strings a pearl from the parable he just told to a passage of the Bible. That's kind of unexpected to me. I don't know that they would have expected that. It would have been customary to go from one passage to another. But here's Jesus telling a story and then he connects it to a passage in the Bible. Now, he can do that because he's the author of the Bible, we believe. And so the story he told is Scripture now. <laughs> it wasn't Scripture when he told it, at least to them. But it's kind of unusual. It's kind of unexpected to me. And the, the Scripture that he connects to is in Psalms. Psalms 118. And it's actually a song that would have been very familiar to the people there. It was like he started singing a song to them in the midst of this argument, in the midst of their dumbfoundedness where they had no answer. It's almost as if he broke out into a song and he started quoting lyrics. Like I might go, you can dance if you want to. <laughs> right? And we all immediately know the song, right? Well, it was kind of like Jesus did that. He started quoting lyrics from a song. Now the song is Psalm 118. And it, would, it goes way back in Jewish history. It was written back at the dedication of the second temple. I won't even get into all that history. But it was like centuries before, and it had been sung pretty consistently ever since during Passover at the temple. So everyone knew it. It was one of those songs that everybody could cheer along to. It was a great song. You ever see Top Gun? Yeah. The, the first one? I don't know if the second one's out, but the, the real one? So in the real one, Maverick's in the bar, and he's trying to pick up on Charlie, and he sings a song. What's the song? Great Balls of Fire. Not Great Balls of Fire. What is You've lost that love and feeling. And eventually, the whole bar starts singing in, right? I don't know if that happened, but I just like to imagine that that's what happened. <laughs> that here he is, he starts quoting the song, and then the crowd starts singing the song along with him. Just to humor me, but also for your benefit, let's listen to the song. I want you to hear what he said to these guys in this moment, where his heart was at. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He's my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I come them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swam around me like, like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my desire. He has become my salvation. Verse 15, it's a little bit like a rap. 
Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open for me the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone of the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. The Lord save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. Jesus breaks into a song and if you look at the lyrics of the song, you can almost see him pleading with these men. Don't you know that the Lord is good? He has chastened me. I get it, guys. I get that this is hard for you. I get that this is a hard teaching. But come on, man. It's God. He loves you. He doesn't want to kill you. He wants you to live. He wants you to survive. He wants you to be successful. He wants to be your salvation. He's good and his love endures forever. In the midst of rebuking these people, of in the strongest possible language condemning them for pride and not willing to be in and, and, and the, the act of not listening to God anymore. He's singing to them to get them to listen. To listen. That's mission love. Jesus was loving these guys. He was, he was doing everything he could. He saw these men as his mission field. They were supernaturally and strategically placed in his life for this moment, at this time, for him to speak to them. Just like God puts people in your life at certain times and certain places for you to speak to them. Just like you've been put in someone's life at certain times and certain places for God to speak to you. And he's begging them. He's pleading with them. Please know that God is good. He loves you. His love endures forever. Come on. Listen. Verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because he knew he had spoken the parable against them. They didn't listen. It made no difference. At the end of the day, they were too invested in their mistakes. They were like Dr. Old. Not humble. I'm going to close, and I've got one point. One thing I want to leave you with today, and, I, and, and really it's what this whole message is about, it's a message that means much to me, and I hope it means a lot to you. The most important thing we can do every day is to humble ourselves before God. Let's go ahead and stand.
Let's go arm in arm. We'll go across the aisle. I'll close out in a word of prayer and you'll be dismissed.